brought you to Ireland in such depth? Well, the Smiths aren't the, the traditional um, pop or rock and roll group. We don't want to go to America and become enormously rich. We only want to go to places that we really care about, and we can only do things that we really care for. And since we all have Irish parentage and very strong um, connections with this country, it's very, very dear to us. It's just as important as England, where we all live. So we wanted to tour it with as much scope as possible. <laughs> It's time the tale were told about the Smiths' November 1984 tour of Ireland. One that involves paramilitaries, politics, emigration, unemployment and the soundtrack to a generation as the iconic Mancunian Irish band pitched up for nine gigs in ten chaotic days at the height of the Troubles. On October 12th, 1984, the IRA blew up a section of the Grand Hotel in Brighton, narrowly missing... British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Amidst widespread condemnation, Morrissey, lead singer of the Smiths, praised the bombers and turned the band's upcoming Irish tour into a political storm. He was a machine gun of opinions. He wanted the Queen to die. He wanted Mrs Thatcher to die. It was the wrong thing to say. Belfast a very, very dodgy place to do that in. Formed in Manchester in the early 80s, the Smiths are regarded as one of the most influential bands of all time. The four members guitarist Johnny Marr, lead singer Morrissey, bassist Andy Rourke and drummer Mike Joyce all had Irish backgrounds and the nationwide November 84 tour was very much a homecoming. Well, they just didn't have enough. Basically, we didn't have enough power. But it was less than 10 years since the UVF had killed members of the Miami show band and tensions increased as the band reached the border counties. So the guns, the security, the barbed wire, the soldiers the fucking security gates outside the hotel. But why did one of the biggest bands of the 1980s go from headlining Glastonbury to playing a community centre in Donegal? And what happened when the Smiths found themselves in the middle of one of the biggest political flashpoints of the Troubles? And then there's just a, like a questionnaire, you know, to each member of the band. It's early January 2023. Favourite food, yoghurt for Morrissey. And sound engineer Favourite Diane Barton is at her home in Manchester. She's got two cats. Back in 1984, Diane was part of the crew working with one of the biggest bands around, the Smiths. Ambition in life, immortality. <laughs> Diane is going through some old itineraries from tours with the band and one tour she will never forget is the November 1984 tour of Ireland. Oh, they always called it the Book of Lies because not much information on it was true, really. The Smiths were one of the most political bands of the time and that included much of the crew. Yeah, we were all very political at the time, really, I suppose. Ed, who did the monitors, he was member of the Communist Party. For the Smiths, the policies of Margaret Thatcher's Conservative Party government were to blame for the high levels of unemployment in Britain. Here's guitarist Johnny Marr speaking at the height of the band's fame. It is literally as bleak as people imagine it to be. And it's, it's, a, it's a conservative dream in England. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Well, I think we were old of that mind, you know, we all hated Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher 
had also been a target in Ireland for the paramilitary group, the IRA, since the hunger strikes in 1981. West Belfast, May 1981. 70,000 people attend the funeral of the MP for Fermanagh and South Tyrone, Bobby Sands. The IRA picked the 1984 Conservative Party conference as the moment for their revenge. At 2.54 a.m. on October the 12th, 1984, an IRA bomb exploded at the hotel where Margaret Thatcher and her cabinet were staying. Shortly after the bomb went off, Mrs. Thatcher was taken away from the wrecked building and on her way, she spoke briefly to reporters. Very well, thank right. you very much. Our worry is... Uh, whether there's anyone under that rubble, because I don't know whether you've seen it, but it's pretty awful. Margaret Thatcher had survived, but five people were killed and many more seriously injured. In the wake of the attack, Morrissey gave an interview to the music magazine Melody Maker. When asked about the British Prime Minister, Morrissey said, the sorrow of the Brighton bombing is that she escaped unscathed. The sorrow is that she's still alive but I feel relatively happy about it. I think for once the IRA were accurate in selecting their targets. I'm going to ask you about that, talking about strong messages. How about politics in music? Well, it has to be there now because we live in very serious and crucial times and for pop music just to be bland and disposable, well, it's really too late for that. Everybody has to be politically aware these days. If you're not, you know you're lost and you're quite um, silly. You have to be aware of the political situation because things have become so crucial and important. Everybody has to have their say and everybody has to be aware. Journalist and broadcaster Danny Kelly is former editor of the hugely influential New Musical Express magazine. He was working at the NME back in 1984 when the magazine covered issues like the Troubles alongside bands like the Smiths. Uh, but of course, the Brighton bombing, you'd have to be made of, uh, of some kind of straw, felt not to, not to have felt it. It was a huge moment in British politics. Um, the idea um, that the, the, the leader of the government, if not the head of state, um, could be killed in a bombing campaign this was, and we were used to the violence, you know, the, the troubles were going on. This was stuff from, it came out in films. At the time, the music press was all-powerful and nothing shifted copies in the mid-80s like The Smiths. Here I am, standing on a corner in downtown Chalton Come Hardy, minding my own business, reading this week's NME. And what do I see on the cover? This charming man, Morrissey whose group, the Smiths from Manchester, have been voted Group of the Year in the NME poll. And only that, their new album has gone straight into the charts at number one. What's it all about? If you haven't yet experienced the Smiths phenomenon, follow me. And everything Morrissey said was heavily scrutinised. Morrissey's lyrics meant that their band suddenly became a rallying point for anybody who felt disaffected. They were very important to the music press. If you had the Smiths on the cover, the thing would sell out. He was a machine gun of opinions. He wanted the Queen to die. He wanted Mrs Thatcher to die. The outlook for Irish teenagers in the 1980s was just as bleak as in Britain, with sky-high unemployment rates. Well, we were just saying there earlier on that uh, the Smiths have been in the programme many times over the last few years, in particular Johnny Marr, and uh, you've never actually been with us... Many found a connection with the music of the Smiths and beaming it into their bedrooms every night of the week was Dave Fanning. So the Smiths at the SFX, my God, I remember the SFX, all right. 
Um, and I, the, the, the review that I've done here, this is going to be very embarrassing, but I'm going to quote from this from the Irish Times. It says, The Smiths at the SFX by Dave Fanning. If guitarist Johnny Marr, in brackets, image, Ringo, circa 63, sound, scratchy, sweet and always perfect, seriously, sorry, um, is the ace in the pack, vocalist Morrissey as the falsettoed, flower-powered windmill is the star. I love it. Songs like Hand in Glove, What Difference Does It Make and How Soon Is Now became regular fixtures on Dave Fanning's show. But in the middle of the 80s, 84 to 87, those three years, the Smiths were one of the biggest things around in terms of what I was doing. I was five nights a week on radio doing loads of other stuff with music too and the Smiths were absolutely huge. So point is that whatever I did, it wasn't that I deserve any praise for it, it was just I was there, right time, right place, that's all it is. And right in the middle of all of it, in the 80s, the 10 best years of all of that, was the Smiths. And they were absolutely huge. The band's meteoric rise saw them play Glastonbury in 1984 as one of the headline acts. And there were plans for them to return to Ireland for a concert at Dalymount Park with Neil Young later that summer. When that fell through, a nationwide tour of provincial towns and cities was booked for November 1984, with shows in Dublin, Waterford, Limerick, Cork, Galway, Letterkenny, Coleraine and Belfast. It was seen as a homecoming, given their Irish backgrounds. Here's Johnny Marr on radio at the height of their fame, explaining how that influenced his work. From Southern Ireland, Kildare, and... Um, they, that really got me into playing straight off. There was always guitars and accordions and stuff. I, I come from, you know, the traditional, very musical Irish Irish background, very. Um, my folks, they're country promoters. They put bands on in England, and um, which which is an interesting pastime of theirs. So there was always music around the house quite a lot. They're big, really big country fans. So they turned me on to a lot of stuff. And I spent quite a lot of time in Ireland, sort of... Uh, four months of the year, every year, over there with relatives. Like many of Manchester's Irish community, Mar's whole family had moved over from Kildare in the early 60s in search of work. He, he digs holes in roads, my old fella, and, uh, which is probably why he needed something else to do. Uh, and uh, all, my, all my relatives did the same. Well, they came over from Ireland and, and from working in fields and started as labourers and um, still do to this day, you know, they, they really love the outdoor life, all those, all those cats. So, um, but it's a really, really strong musical background, they're all, they're all real music freaks. Bass player Andy Rourke was childhood friends with Johnny Marr and also had Irish heritage on his father's side, while drummer Mike Joyce's parents came from Shrewl and Port Arlington. While Morrissey became the focal point for media attention, Bass player Andy Rourke and drummer Mike Joyce were happy to stay in the wings. Considering there are four people in the band and considering that they can't do much out there without good drumming and bass playing, do you two ever get annoyed at the attention given to Morrissey? Um, no, not really. I think he deserves the attention he gets. Um... Oh, come on, come on. There must be a little sometime when you think it's all, all Steve, all Steve Morrissey up there. Well, never feel... well, we know that we're appreciated. So, I mean, but, I mean, obviously, if we, if we don't do interviews and we're not on the TV like every power like Morrissey and, then, and we're not going to be uh, asked anything so I mean that's fine I mean we're, we're happy where we are mm. in the background yeah, yeah, our time will come but the attention Morrissey's comments about the IRA were getting was not so welcome 
It was less than 10 years since the Miami Showband massacre, and there were fears for the safety of the Smiths and their crew on the upcoming Irish tour. The six Miami bandsmen left the Castle Ballroom in Banbridge just before two this morning. One travelled north to visit friends in County Antrim. The remaining five drove south to Dublin and straight into a carefully prepared ambush. Five people were killed in an attack on the band by loyalist paramilitaries. Dave Fanning recalls the reluctance of English bands to come to Ireland at that time. Not that many English bands came over, no. I mean, especially after, you know, with what happened with the Miami show band and that, that lasted for so long, the repercussions after that, and I can kind of understand all that. But I wouldn't give out to any band who wouldn't want to go to the North. The volatility of it all was, you know, too much for any normal one person to go with, the madness of it all, the stupidity of it all, the inanity of it all. So I would um, well understand why any band wouldn't want to go near coming to, you know, the North of Ireland or even Ireland at the time. I can understand it, you know, yeah. I really can. In Britain, a huge manhunt was underway to find those responsible for the Brighton bombing. You hear about these atrocities, these bombs. You don't expect them to happen to you. Promoters MCD arranged extra security for the Smiths and their crew as they left Hollyhead for Dublin on November the 11th, 1984. I remember it was a, um, a rough crossing, you know, when everybody was not very well on the on the boat at all. <laughs> I'm not sure if Morrissey and Johnny Marr ended up going to hospital after, because they'd been that ill. Yeah, it was a rough crossing, that. On November the 12th, the Smiths released the compilation album Hat Full of Hollow. But as the band arrived at the SFX, Morrissey's comments about the IRA were very much to the forefront of minds within the band's crew. Yeah, mum mom had a few choice words for me about, about my personal safety and the safety of everybody else too, yeah. Lighting specialist John Featherston had been with the band from nearly the very start, and he knew this tour was going to be different. You know, the, 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 biggest, the biggest risk up until that point in the Smith show was that somebody was going to get poked in the eye with a gladioli. There, there, was, a, there was a different kind of potential risk because, because obviously that was an incredibly divisive comment. It was sound engineer Grant Showbiz's job to play the band's walk-on music every night of the tour. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, Prokefiev's uh, Romeo and Juliet. Of course, I've, got, I've still got the CD. And then came the slow lament. Please, please, please let me get what I want a song that would later become one of their most covered tracks and one that features in movies like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. But it began life as the Irish Waltz, when composed by Johnny Marr. Hello there, I'm Grant Showbiz. I used to do the sound for the Smiths. That must have been a pretty deliberate uh, decision because we didn't do that. I don't remember going on to that particular song as a first song, if, if we ever did it at any other, any other tours. I don't think so. It was quite a tight-knit little group in those days. There was maybe, what was there? Was there a dozen people touring with us at the most? You know, it wasn't 
a huge group, which it probably got, it got larger as, as the years went on and there were more people who were less in the centre involved. It was important going to Ireland and they did, they, they felt a weight of responsibility on their shoulders that wasn't immediately obvious to me as an outsider. Um, there was a slight air of like, you know, we've really got to do this well. There was some mild drama backstage too, when Morrissey's father, Peter, turned up. The singer's relationship with his Dublin-born dad had been distant since his parents divorced. And Grant Showbiz remembers Peter Morrissey's surprise appearance at the SFX, heightening tensions further. It was like... It was like being at school in some respects because you get people whispering to you, Morris's dad, Morris's dad is here. You know, what's, what's going to happen? Because he wasn't invited. Uh, you know, I know that wonderful thing that's true is that Morrissey and his father have been reconciled recently. Uh, and that's great. And I'm very happy for both of them. But what is also true was they were not reconciled at that point. Actually, Irish scene, do you watch Irish bands at all? Do you keep an ear to what's actually happening over here as regards who's going to break out of the country? Well, obviously, in England, there's a great deal of um, cultural snobbery and they're always just very um, entwined in their own backyard and what's happening in London. Many journalists won't leave London, so therefore they'll, they'll only see as far as they can um, travel. So there isn't really a great deal of attention given to groups over here. I know there's a group in Dublin called Those Handsome Devils, which um, sound very interesting to me. On November the 14th, the band left Dublin, headed for Waterford. Diane Barton has come across an interview the singer gave to Paul Russell for Dublin's Evening Herald, and she's reading his response to a question about the Brighton bombing comments. Oh, yeah, we discussed politics in the interview, which is something that I am very interested in, and some of the quotes disturbed a great many people because they were anti-Thatcher. I might add that in the interview... And you probably think this is incredibly insignificant. When I spoke of Thatcher, they repeatedly printed the word Maggie, which for various reasons I never ever utter because it is a term of endearment. <laughs> uh, yeah. In Waterford, final preparations were underway for the show at the Savoy a disused cinema that was being used as a bingo hall at the time. And it's now a bookshop. Way back there would be where, you know, there was an upper balcony up that way. And down here would be where the gig was, basically. So this is Ollie Breslin. In 1984, he was part of a local musical co-op made up mostly of unemployed teenagers that helped bring the Smiths to Waterford. The co-op, known as Music Moves, had been promoting local bands with the view to bringing bigger acts to a city that had been gutted by unemployment. I mean, Waterford's kind of a blue-collar town in the sense that it's a working-class place. It's kind of like... A, there is a sense, too, I suppose because of Waterford Glass as well and the, the trade unions, how strong the trade unions, there was a sense of, like, militancy and a sense of people can, can do things for themselves and not put up with bullshit, like, you know I mean? So there was always that sense when we were growing up that we could do things. Louis Quinlan 
was another member of the Music Moves Co-op in Waterford in 1984. See, we were all kids. When I say kids, we were 16, 17, 18. Now, there was one or two maybe in the mid-20s. But, you know, opening bank accounts and stuff like that wasn't easy in those days. Um, and then we had to use a night safe and all that, so we had the little wallet and we'd only one phone. One of the guys had a phone, I think it was Ollie, Ollie Breslin's or a guy called Bruno Brown's. They, both their parents had phones for some reason. Bands will often send a list of items they want at gigs to promoters before concerts, known as a rider. The Smith's rider contained tea, coffee, milk, biscuits, lager, fruit, nuts and cigarettes. Ollie Breslin also remembers a request for a tree branch. Part of their rider was that we had to provide a branch for Morrissey to put his trousers in. So when he danced around, he'd have the branch sticking out of his arse, right? And uh, we had a debate at the meeting about who was going to get the branch for Morrissey. And I remember Butch Moore said, Butch is a local lad, he said, I'll go, I'll get one. He goes off to the park. I think he brought a variety of branches with him for Morrissey to pick which one that he wanted. Support on the tour was from fellow Mancunian band James, while local band The Village were also on the Waterford lineup. The main promoter for the whole tour was MCD, made up of Dennis Desmond and Eamon McCann, who were working in tandem with local promoters on many of the provincial dates. Louis Quinlan remembers Dennis Desmond being unimpressed with some of the Waterford crew. Yeah, 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 I remember that distinctly. And the house electrician then uh, got at the Buckfast wine early, who shall remain nameless, and uh, he was kind of, kind of yellow looking by the nights out, you know what I mean? Uh, I saw Dennis Desmond and he looked like a businessman with a long coat, uh, very, very suave, very sophisticated man. And uh, he said, I hope you won't be asking uh, for the house electrician's fee uh, because he's face down in the gutter, the worse for wear. Ollie Breslin recalls some of the chaos as the band played a blistering set. was a bit of damage because once everybody gets up dancing, like, and they're dancing on seats and everything, and then some of the seats collapse and all that kind of stuff. So that's, and I think there was a radiator collapsed as well. <laughs> there was a, a number of things collapsed. <laughs> But that's because we was lying idle for years, like, you know, so it was, um, it was no maintenance, right? The morning after the gig, Owen Ronane went to interview Morrissey for what was then the pirate station WLR. This is the first time the interview has been broadcast since being played on Waterford local radio in 1984. I find it... People are the same all over. Here, it was really surprising that people were so enthusiastic and so warm. And um, that, that to us became quite um, emotional and virtually tearful. But um, it really it depends upon what you expect from people. And uh, what can we say? It was just overwhelming. We just came back to the hotel and we were speechless. Owen has spent several decades as one of the leading trade union officials in Ireland. But back in 1984, he was heavily involved in the pirate radio scene in Waterford. I was in my early days uh, in terms of being a broadcaster. Um, when I look back on it, you think of all the missed opportunities and the questions you should have asked and all the rest of it. But uh, yeah, it's still there and I have it on cassette. Um, but yeah, I was conscious that Morrissey was, at that stage, becoming a big star. He wanted to talk about, you know, working class, 
you know, economic issues, politics, uh, and he, he tried to went into that kind of general area. Um, I think I cracked a joke at the end of it. I don't think he really got it. But what about the lyrics and the music? Do you feel that there is uh, something to be said? Well, I sincerely hope so. Most of them stem fr from uh, many, many years that I spent on the dole in England, feeling quite depressed. But I always felt that if you can face your depression and if you can face the problems in, in your life, that's very, very positive. And you're, you're learning to cope with them, deal with them, and, and eventually, hopefully, overthrow them. So I think they all absolutely stem from um, the realities of a modern life, if you like. There's nothing rock and roll or fantasy or, or um, you know, pantomime about them. I can't write in those terms. It has to be real. It has to be about the, the way young people live these days, which, regrettably, is very, very hard and difficult. Despite growing anxiety about Morrissey's IRA comments, sound engineer Grant Showbiz recalls a lot of laughter on the Irish tour. I was happy in the haze of a drunken hour it was just all great fun. So, yeah, it was very much a bunch of happy lads. Andy um, perhaps had that thing of deflating pomposity at times, which was very healthy. Like, travelling around was, like, really difficult because the roads were tiny and that one of those roads uh, that, that took you all the way through Ireland, that didn't exist, so getting to places was insane, particularly in large vehicles, which we were using. John Featherston was in charge of lighting and stage production for the band at the time. And for John, the November 1984 tour was typical of the chaos around life on the road with the Smiths. It's one of the perils of, of, uh, of, of working for a band that, that had, shall we, shall we say, a checkered history with management. It is there were definitely occasions where we'd get to town and find a poster for the gig to figure out where we were going. Uh, and there were more than a few occasions where we'd get into a town and, you know, one of us, Grant or I usually, would hop out of the bus, go get a taxi, to ask the taxi to take us to the gig and don't drive fast because there's a truck and a bus following you. After Waterford, they played in Limerick and Galway before arriving in Cork on November the 18th. The city had been hit badly by unemployment in the previous months as well, and the arrival of a band like the Smiths was a welcome distraction for the city's young population. Colm O'Callaghan is a writer and producer, and the man behind the groundbreaking indie music show No Disco in the 1990s. Back in November 1984, he was a fan heading to see the Smiths in Cork. What was Cork like? Cork was depressed and it smelt. I mean, and, and, and you know, routinely because of the industrial nature of a lot of the, the, the activity in the harbour, like routinely, the, and I've, I, I've written about this, the, the wind would blow this appalling stench up from the harbour often into the middle of the city. And it was always like, like the city stank, you know. Um, and it was hard, it was a hard place. Um, you know, it's a port town, you know, port city. Um, and, and, you know, it, 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 Cork was no different, I think, to Galway or Limerick or Dublin or, or you know, um, it, was, it, was, uh, it was dark, it was dank, and it was hard. And the gig ended in a hail of spit, Johnny Marr walking off, and 
the band reluctantly coming back to do a couple of encores and never playing Cork again. With the tour now heading towards the border, Morrissey's comments about the IRA and Margaret Thatcher were firmly back in focus. That the unified Ireland uh, uh, was one solution that is out. And the political atmosphere in the North at that moment was incredibly tense. Um, a second solution was a confederation of two states. That is out. A third solution was joint authority. That is out. That is a derogation from sovereignty. Meanwhile, there was a surprise in store for the band. A full page had been devoted to the Smiths in that week's edition of Republican newspaper on Fublocked. But Donegal promoter John McIver had more pressing thoughts on his mind when the Smiths finally arrived at the Letterkenny Community Centre. Well, they just didn't have enough. Basically, we didn't have enough power. It was lacking in power, should we say. <laughs> Malachy Hegarty was helping John on the night and he remembers the shock at the size of the Smiths' setup. Well, I was, I was hired to bring the gear in, basically, and we brought the gear in. We, we went over to the community centre and this articulated truck was there with speakers and everything. It was likely we were going to play in the O2 arena, but it's a small, small venue. John Featherston's lighting rig was bigger than anything the Letterkenny Community Centre had coped with before. So, so it was a very theatrical show, and that means we needed a lot of power. So there were a lot of lights because there was a distinctive look, and it wasn't just throw a couple of floodlights and hope for the best. The band were like, no, we, we're going to take the same show that we would use at Brixton Academy uh, with, with significant differences in scale and, and, and availability. And, and it, I still remember working with, you know, with the stagehands, you know, with, with the humpers, the guys that were getting the gear, the gear in and out of the gigs. And they were like, we haven't seen anything like this. Like, Great, that's, that's the idea, mission, mission accomplished. As the crowd started to arrive, promoter John McIver was in a race against time to fix the power and save the gig. The power was wavering. All I knew was we might have to get a generator in here. And I didn't know even where I'd get a generator at half five and what day of the week it was. But with minutes to spare, the power was fixed. The lights came on and the doors could open. The hall was filling up. But Morrissey's comments about Margaret Thatcher had not gone unnoticed. Before the band went on stage, they were approached by Republicans who wanted to make a speech before the gig, as John Featherston recalls. So, so there, there was a very frenzied, hectic discussion about, you know, in the early 80s, Sinn Féin weren't easy to say no to. Um, and, and with eschewing that, what did that mean for the band and, frankly, for everybody's personal safety? And, and what did that mean when we went to other parts of Ireland or other people in Ireland understandably disagreed with that position? John McIver was unaware of the situation unfolding as he tried to stop fans evading the ticket office on a cold, damp November night in Donegal. Uh, it wasn't made aware to me. I wasn't made aware of it. And um, I don't think it would have gone over very well, you know. It wasn't the right, 
it wasn't the right environment and anybody making thinking that that to use them as a as a political statement would have been it would have been very stupid finally the band took the stage for the seventh show of the tour and Malachi was front and center for a once in a lifetime moment one of the biggest bands of the 1980s playing the local community center in Letterkenny he came on stage swinging a rosary bead and said we are a bunch of snotty people called the Smiths and just got into the gig. I mean, the big thing for me was Johnny Marr. He, he was outstanding. Couldn't look impressed by Johnny Marr, you know, yourself. Great, great player. I like Morrissey as well. I mean, I think of, you know, some of the lyrics, you know, the, the headmaster ritual, amazing song. You know, every, anybody that went through school in the 60s, you know, belligerent ghouls run Manchester schools, spineless swine, cemented minds, all my teachers were like that. So, it, 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 you know, it resonates with me. He's just a great writer, you know, I mean, very eccentric sort of a man, but, I, you know, I don't mix the artist with the art, if you like. The next day, the band crossed the border for the second last show of the tour at the University of Ulster in Coleraine. Sound engineer Diane Barton recalls some of the drama at the border. I remember going to the north and going through a checkpoint and it was like a clearing with lights and you could see there was bunkers and there was a big... Um, speed bump and I think the security man had to get out and talk to them and then as we had to go over through this at like five mile an hour or something and the bus bottomed out on the speed bump and everybody had to get out and push push it off the bump which was hilarious really I, I didn't get out because it was like I'm sure it's not going to make any difference one more person pushing Security around the Smiths was tightened once across the border and there was a sense of trepidation according to the band's lighting specialist, John Featherston. Um, it was the first time we had uh, a security presence with the band. It was the first time we were told, you maybe want to be a little cautious about saying who you're working for. You maybe want to be a little aware of not presenting as part of the band party all the time. You know, make sure you don't wear your pass when you're out and about. And 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 certainly for we were we were babies, David. So 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 that realization that that not only were we part of something really, really amazing and really big, but also something where words mattered. Um and Morrissey's words mattered, not only to the audiences that 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 his and Johnny's music touched but also to a broader spectrum, was, was, I think, a little sobering for everybody. The show in Coleraine passed off without incident, but band anxiety reached new levels when they reached Belfast for the last night of the affair. Sound engineer Grant Showbiz recalls the band and crew changing hotels several times during the day before the gig. Absolute terror at Northern Ireland. None of us, I don't think any of us had experienced that. So the guns, the security, the barbed wire, the soldiers, the fucking security gates outside the hotel. Belfast in 1984 was a sobering experience for John Featherston, 
the Smith's lighting designer. Yeah, I absolutely remember. You know, Belfast in the early 80s was, it was it was a scary place. It was a scary place for the people that lived there. Um, and and Grant's right for a bunch of sort of, you know, y- youngish kids from, from suburban England, as we all sort of were. Yeah, guns and tanks and... Uh, Armored Land Rovers and soldiers on the streets. Yeah, that's 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 a scary sight. Damien Priestley is an artist from East Belfast. He was one of the people who lived there. Boom, 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 boom. Gonna shoot you right down. Damien has produced artwork for Van Morrison and sold paintings to people like Spike Lee. But as a young artist in the 1980s, his work was in demand from a very different set of people for very different reasons. Um, I grew up in East Belfast in a Protestant area, but in actual fact, all my friends, um, and had been since 1978, were all from a, a Catholic enclave um, called the Short Strand, which was you know, a mile away from where I lived. Um, so very, very staunch on both sides, not even Catholic and Protestant, but loyalist and Republican. I mean, very, very opposite, but that's where my friends came from. When I was a kid, because I could draw from a very, very early age, and kind of everybody knew it. And I was doing flyers for bands and stuff, you know, from the early 80s and everything else, and little cassette covers and record things and stuff in shop windows, all sorts of stuff. And customizing people's leather jackets and, you know, and in the early 80s, I was customizing their ghetto blasters and all that kind of stuff. Well, I had to sort of run the gauntlet and hide from people who wanted to come and knock my door to get me to paint a mural from a whole different perspective. So I had to duck and dive that for uh, quite a few years, to be quite frank until they got the message, I'm not interested. Back in 1984, he was a huge Smiths fan and had a ticket for the Ulster Hall, the final night of the tour. You know, well, you know what it was like, especially in the North, not a lot of bands came to Belfast in the 70s and early 80s. Those who did all got an amazing response, obviously, because, you know, kids, teenagers, young adults, they were starved of live music, you know? He knew the risks that were being taken by the band after Morrissey's comments about Margaret Thatcher and the IRA. Um, I was no fan of Margaret Thatcher myself. Um, uh, but then again, I was no fan of the IRA. Um, I was no fan of, fan of any kind of paramilitarism. It was the wrong thing to say. I say I'm no fan of Margaret Thatcher, but that was the wrong thing to say, in my opinion, you know. Inflammatory, controversial statements um, have resonance in the places where you can least control. And that's Belfast, a very, very dodgy place to do that in. But on the night of November the 22nd, 1984, Damien went to the gig at the Ulster Hall with his friend Julie. And the crowd that were there, from all sides of the community, were only interested in the music. There was a balcony and the downstairs. There was no way I was going up into the balcony. Just absolutely no way. I pushed my way to the front for the first tune and all hell broke loose. So it was fantastic, you know, so. The gig was a hit. The tour had been a success, and nearly 40 years on, the memories haven't faded for people like Malachy Hegarty from Letterkenny. People, people still remember it. I mean, people who met staff from school the next day or that day, or who had rows with their parents maybe because they wanted to go and their parents wouldn't let them. I, I've met people like that. You know, I can't remember who was there, but people do remember it. You know, how could you not? You know, you know, I mean. Given their subsequent career, they played in Letterkenny, you know. Damien Priestley is still finding inspiration in the music all these years later. Virtually every one of the tracks on those first two albums I play constantly in my studio today. When I'm sitting painting and working, 
If I need a bit of drive, that's what I still turn to. The tour was also a huge success for Waterford's Music Moves co-op, as Ollie Breslin recalls. Yeah, we did. We managed to pull it off, and uh, nobody, nobody died. <laughs> and we all had good fun. And we still talk about it. You know, 40 years later, we still talk about it. The tour brings back fond memories for members of the band's old crew, like Diane Barton. They were all great to work with. You know, really. Morrissey was very um, shy, really. He kept himself to himself. But the rest of the lads were really fun to work with. Sound engineer Grant Showbiz remembers a special 10 days. It felt unguarded and, uh, and very special. And how lucky we were to do that, you know. And lighting designer John Featherston agrees. It was the realisation that, you know, stuff's going to get real here, that, that people are listening, that words matter, and that there's an opportunity to really make a statement. And I think after that tour, things did get a good bit more serious. You know, it, it, was, it really was a, a wild ride. Smith's fan, Colm O'Callaghan. A band like the Smiths was, was, I think, a once-in-a-generation experience. And those shows were once-in-a-generation experiences. And I'm just glad I was there. And for former trade union official Owen Ronane, the man who interviewed Morrissey for Pirate Radio back in 1984, there are some bittersweet memories from that whole time. There's not a trade unionist in Britain who wouldn't, maybe wouldn't, say it was a pity the IRA missed, but they, they certainly would have no love for Margaret Thatcher, you know. And I mean, I certainly remember the day she died and I, I definitely opened a bottle of beer, you know. I know it's coming, you know, you're glad to get on the road, you have to move to Limerick, quite a few dates left in Ireland. Uh, simple question, it's one that I think we've been talking about downstairs before I came up. Um, the trees, the trees in Ireland, are they different? They're certainly different, they're much greener and softer, I like them. 